Thank you, Ben. Uh, it's a great honor for me to be here tonight and uh, looking forward to studying the book of Zechariah with you here in just a minute. Ben and I uh, met when he came to Freed Hardeman. I was already there. And uh, from day one, I really I tried to work on him as best I could. I uh, really did try to do my best. And uh, let me just say that in two years of, of arguing and, uh, and debating, and he, I, I, of course, usually won those. Uh, I, you know, I'm trying to think of a time I lost, but I can't. Uh, but uh, he's got a couple, but uh, don't listen to him. But I would say I have the mic, but you know Ben, so it, that doesn't matter either. But anyway, uh, what I'm trying to say is in uh, two years of working on Ben, uh, the amount of progress that I made, Jincy made that amount of progress in about two minutes. So I think there's a special place in heaven for uh, Jincy, and I know that Ben will uh, say a loud amen to that. Uh, all right, if you want to turn in your Bibles to the book of Zechariah, that's where we're going to be. As we get started tonight, uh, just out of curiosity, uh, I don't know how long you've been a Christian. If you're not a Christian, certainly want to invite you to do that tonight. But uh, if you are, are a Christian, I, I don't know how long you've been a Christian, but I just wonder, and you don't have to answer this question, but in your mind, when is the last time that you heard a sermon or a lesson on the book of Zechariah? Just think about that for a second, because if you're like me, and I'm the preacher, so this is, this is not an indictment on, on any preacher or any uh, elder or Bible class or anything like that, but the book of Zechariah is one that we typically go to um, for really only about one reason, one thing that is in the book of Zechariah. Anybody happen to know off the top of their head what that might be? So in the book of Zechariah, as we're going to find out, there is the discussion about the king that comes in to the city riding on a donkey. So anytime we talk about the triumphal entry, we may go back to the book of Zechariah. But other than that, it doesn't get a lot of, uh, a lot of our time. And I started reading this book. And I started, I, I was looking at the sheet they gave me, you know, of the different places you people could put down their name, what date they were available, and what book would be assigned. And I started looking, and, and here's a guy who, on August, you know, this date and this date, here's a guy who's been a preacher for 50 years. Here's a guy who works for a preaching school. And here I am. I, I'm the guy that ended up with Zechariah. So I'm not sure how that happened uh, or not. But I actually am really thankful because the more that I've been able to study this book over the last couple weeks, the more I have discovered that it really is a hidden gem. It's got so many wonderful things to teach us tonight. And I'm really looking forward to talking to y'all in the room. And also want to say hi to those that are joining us online as well. We're grateful for your presence tonight. Uh, also. So if you look in the book of Zechariah, we're going to start by thinking about the background of Zechariah. And I'm not going to try to spend a whole lot of time on this because I want to be able to get into the text. Zechariah is a very long book to be considered a minor prophet. It's one of those 12 books that we call minor prophet, but there's really 14 chapters to this book. And throughout the time tonight, I'd like for us to at least be familiar with each chapter, though we're not going to be able to read the whole book or maybe even read a section from every chapter, but we do want to just get familiar with the book. But let's go ahead and set the stage for the book of Zechariah. I want you to think about both the world of Zechariah and the prophet himself. Who was the man, Zechariah? So let's start by thinking about the world of Zechariah. 
During Zechariah's day, Zechariah was a prophet of God, and you probably, um, when you, uh, have you guys done Haggai yet? Has that been a book that we, okay. So when you're reading the book of Haggai, he is mentioned, if you go back to Ezra and Nehemiah, you'll read a little bit about uh, Zechariah as well. But our scriptures, as you know, are not arranged chronologically, meaning you don't, you're not able to read the Old Testament and go from one date to the next. You are up to a point, but as soon as you get to, you know, about the book of Esther, uh, things change because we have our books organized based on uh, the more historical books, and then we have um, and, and law-based books, and then we have, you know, the, the wisdom literature, Proverbs, Psalms, Ecclesiastes, and then we have all of the prophets. Now that's very helpful in thinking about, you have kind of the law, the writings, the prophets, that's how Jesus even describes the Old Testament when really to him the scriptures during his uh, ministry on the earth, the law, the writings, and the prophets. But it can be pretty confusing to us as modern readers because when we open up and we read Isaiah and we go on to Jeremiah and then we get to Daniel, uh, we might think we're in the exact same time period. And then we get to Haggai and then maybe we jump back to Jonah and we can get confused very quickly about when are these events taking place. Zechariah would be considered a post-exilic prophet. And all that means is Zechariah was a prophet who came to the people of Israel after they had been taken out of the land of Israel and Judah and you know, by two empires. I'll say more about that in a second. But they're taken out, transplanted somewhere else, and eventually they're set free to go back to the land of Judah. And that is where Zechariah joins in the story, and that's where Haggai fits in the story as well. Nehemiah and Ezra tell the history of what happened during the time of Zechariah. So basically, to give you the long story short, if you'll allow me to do that, um, the northern kingdoms, which were called Israel, right, as a divided kingdom, the northern kingdom was conquered by the people of Assyria. God was punishing the people of Israel because of their unfaithfulness to the covenant, because over and over he sends prophets and they uh, don't listen to him, maybe even kill him. And so eventually he has had, it, had enough and he raises up Assyria, uh, really a terrible nation as far as their violence. But they come in and they destroy most of Israel and they take captive the people of Israel. Now they also bring in to the area uh, people and place them from all around the surrounding world, place them in Samaria, which is in the northern kingdoms. And that's where we get the people called the Samaritans when you get to the New Testament. But that's not super relevant for our discussion tonight. So the people of Israel in the north, they get taken by the Assyrians. And a little while later, the people of Israel, I mean of Judah, they have in the south managed to hold off the Assyrians. And it hasn't been pretty, and they've faced a lot of casualties. They've lost cities and all kinds of things. But eventually, God, he, he preserves them, he preserves them, he keeps trying to work with them. But eventually, even the line of David, right, the tribe of Judah, even eventually the tribe of Judah falls because God raises up another empire, the Babylonians. And you might remember the king named Nebuchadnezzar, who comes in and lays siege to the city of Jerusalem. And he ends up taking captive all of the people of Judah. That's where we get the story of, like, Daniel. Uh, we read about Daniel being taken out of Judah and taken to Babylon. Nevertheless, over the period of about 70 years, the people of God are, are suffering at the hands of the Babylonians, and, and things are not looking good, and they're wondering, you know, how long is this going to last? 
And eventually, another kingdom, a third kingdom, and this will be the end of our little history tour, but the third kingdom, the Persians rise up, and they destroy the Babylonians. And in so doing, they look at these people, these people from the land of Israel, Palestine area, Judah, and perhaps even some northern tribes, they look at these people, and they listen to their request to be sent back to Jerusalem to rebuild the temple and to rebuild the city. So Ezra goes back and he starts the people working on um, rebuilding the temple and Nehemiah comes and he starts working with the people to rebuild the walls around Jerusalem. And that's where we get the stories of Haggai and Zechariah. Now, as you remember, the book of Haggai is about the people needing to rebuild the temple. They, they, were, they had started laying the foundation and they stopped and they busied themselves, is how Haggai puts it, with their houses. They start working on putting things in order because they've been gone for 70 years, at least, from the area. And so they're trying to make sense of their world, but they've forgotten to prioritize the Lord. And so Haggai comes to them and says, is this a time? That you say it's not a time you know, to focus on God. But he says, is it a time for you to focus on, he calls them paneled houses, but is it time for you to focus on your physical relationships, your physical prosperity, and yet forget your spiritual well-being, the very reason that you were in exile to begin with. That's the message of Haggai. The message of Zechariah is similar, and yet it's uh, quite a bit, uh, to some degree, more complicated. So before we get to the book, though, let's talk about quickly... Let's talk about the man, and I might have turned my clicker off here. I'm not sure. There we go. Uh, let's talk about Zechariah the prophet for a second. I, I want to just bring out to you a couple of things about him. This won't take long at all. Uh, but the prophet, Zeph uh, the prophet Zechariah, rather, uh, was a man who was the son. Uh, really, he is the, the son of a fellow that ends up uh, probably passing away, would be our guess, because um, in Ezra we read that he's the son of Iddo, and Ido is, according to Zechariah chapter 1, Ido is actually his grandfather. Berechiah is his father, but in Ezra it's uh, the son of Ido. But Ido was a priest, as we learn in Nehemiah. I, I could give you the references for all this, but you understand we're trying to look at the big picture here. Um, Ezra, excuse me, Zechariah's grandfather Ido was a prophet, and so Zechariah also is a prophet and a priest. Iddo was a priest. Zechariah is a prophet and a priest. Um, can you think of another figure in the Bible that was both a prophet and a priest? I'm not talking about Jesus. So the answer to that would be, one of them, would be John the Baptist. John the Baptist came, and he was a prophet, and he was a priest. And can anybody tell me what John the Baptist's father's name was? Zechariah, okay? So just kind of an interesting parallel between the two. So here comes Zechariah, this prophet and priest, and he has a message for the people of God. The book is laid out in essentially two sections, chapters 1 through 8, and we'll, we'll do an overview here, but chapters 1 through 8 of the book of Zechariah are, are all about these visions that Zechariah sees, these dreams, these, uh, uh, it's really quite something to read through them. The second section of the book has to do with poetic oracles. So there is, uh, sorry, I'm a bit behind on my slides, but there, there's a vision section and there's an oracle section. 
Now, oracle, that, that's just a kind of a fancy word that means uh, like poetry. It's, it's like when you open up in the book of Isaiah, most of Isaiah is not and so-and-so went to such-and-such place and did such-and-such thing. Most of Isaiah is poetry, right? It's laid out in more of a, a song or a poem type of format. So there's the structure of the book of Zechariah. I want you to notice something about the first section, though, the vision section. We're going to go through and we're going to look at each of the eight visions that Zechariah has. But I want you to see, and I'm going to show you this as we go, but I want you to see that these books or these uh, chapters are arranged, the, the technical term is, as a chiasm. That just comes from that big X on the screen. That X is the Greek letter for X, key, so you see how it's called chiasm. But basically, if you were to look, and I'm going to use my pointer here if I can remember how to do this. Um, basically, if you thought about uh, if you thought about A being right here, B being right here, and C being right here, if you were to take this and swing it like a hinge down here, you would have C here, B here, and A here. A and A would be as far away from each other as possible. B and B and C and C would be close to one another. You're saying, what does that have to do with what we're talking about? Well, vision one is parallel to vision 8 in Zechariah. Vision 2 is parallel to vision 7, 3 and 6, 4 and 5, uh, and, and that's the way that the book is laid out. And I'm going to show you that when we get into the meaning of each of the visions. If you have not read Zechariah in a while, let me just tell you, you're going to be in for a surprise. Because, uh, I think this is okay for me to say, it's a strange book. It is a strange book. Okay, chapters uh, 9 through 14, easy. Chapters 1 through 8, though, it's like Revelation times 2. I don't know, but it, it, it's, it's that kind of language. It's that kind of imagery. If you think, uh, you know, Revelation, it's easy to get lost in. You've got to know history, and there's all kinds of these visions and things. The first half of Zechariah is like that. We're going to look at that in just a second. The second section, the poetry section, it's all about the Messiah that's coming. There's going to be, according to the prophets, all the prophets, there's coming a day in which this Messiah figure, this anointed one, the Lord's chosen, is going to come. And he's going to come uh, and he's going to vindicate his people. He's going to set his people free. He's going to establish a new kingdom. He's going to um, build up his city. And so the book of Zechariah talks quite a bit about that toward the end. And there's hints throughout the visions as well. So let's start by talking about the central message of Zechariah. Here's where we get more simple and we just say, in a sentence, what is the message of Zechariah? God is sovereign over all the nations. And, as we're going to see, he is holy in judging sin. And he is loving and forgiving through his Messiah and in the New Jerusalem. So I'll give that to you again, and we'll come back and solidify this. But God is sovereign in power over all the nations. He is holy in his judgment against sin, and yet he is loving and forgiving towards his people through the Messiah in the new Jerusalem. That all sounds a little bit technical, but hopefully we'll unpack what all of that means here in just a moment. 
Again, this is a 14-chapter book, so I'm going to try to be mindful of my time here tonight out of respect to each of you. And uh, again, I want to give you the broad overview of this book and give you kind of even the tools to study it on your own. Because like I said, it's for, we could read it all and uh, we, we would not be able to really unpack all of, uh, all of the riches. So I hope that you will read this book on your own sometime. So it starts out this way. The book that we're going to journey through quickly, the book starts out by a call to repentance. He's going to start in Zechariah chapter 1, and I just want you to listen to verse 3 for me. Therefore, God says to, to Zechariah, Say to them, say to my people, Thus declares the Lord of hosts, Return to me, says the Lord of hosts, and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. Some versions, when they read the Lord of hosts, sometimes they talk about the Lord of angelic armies. I, I like to think of it in that terms, those terms because uh, you see the emphasis that God is putting from the very beginning about his position of absolute power and sovereignty. And he says, return back to me. You have over and over and over and over and over again wandered from me. Return to me and I will return to you. We're going to see these heavenly visions, and we want to look at them now. And I don't know, oh, that's, that's going to be just off the screen, unfortunately. Uh, hopefully you'll be able to uh, kind of follow me. Again, I'm going to laser pointer just a little bit here. I want to show you the big picture, and then we'll walk through these visions individually. The story begins with these four horsemen. And these four horsemen are set out to patrol um, Actually, I'm going to go through each of them, and I'll show you along the way. But these four horsemen, they're sent out to patrol over all of the earth. And they go and they, they wander throughout the earth. They're looking, they're watching, and they represent God's vision over the entire earth. God is watching everything that happens, is His message to His people. God patrols the nations, and He patrols the nations so that He might ultimately bring peace if you look in Zechariah chapter 1, and as you keep reading uh, in, in verse uh, 9, uh, Zechariah is saying, What are these, you know, my Lord? What are these angelic uh, figures or these horsemen? And he says, you know, I'll show you what they are. These are they whom the Lord has sent to patrol the earth. And they answered the angel of the Lord who was standing among the trees, and, he, and they said, We have patrolled the earth, and what have they accomplished? Behold, all the earth remains at rest. There's another way for saying that. All the earth remains at peace. The Lord is patrolling over all the nations, and he is working to bring them to peace. That's the message of vision number one. Now, I'm going to jump all the way to vision eight. Don't you see, by the way, how this makes that X shape when you put them side by side like that? You remember that big red X I put up there? I drew these lines so you could see why it's called that, why the pattern functions the way that it does. Vision one is connected to vision eight. So let's go over to chapter six and let's look at vision eight together and let's see what the message is of chapter six. Again, this is a very peculiar story. In chapter 6, he sees not four horsemen, but he sees four chariots. And the chariots are sent out in verse 7. They, um, they're impatient to go out and patrol the earth, but in verse 7 he says, Go patrol the earth. 
So they patrolled the earth, and then he cried to me, Behold, those who go toward the north country have what? Set my spirit at rest in the north country. The north country is where all this violence and turbulence is taking place. And so we see here, we see first God patrols the nations in order to bring people to peace. And here God is still watching the nations, looking to bring the peoples to peace. Now we've got to go jump back to the second vision, okay? So let's turn back in our Bibles to Zechariah chapter 1, and let's look at verse 18 and following. Because he sees another vision. And this vision, I wish I you know, could make a movie or something and put these visions in there because it's very interesting. But in this vision, there are four horns that come up, and they are, I guess, stabbing God's people, but they are um, they're wreaking havoc upon the people of God. And these horns look like they're going to be victorious until all of the sudden, behold, there are four, uh, depending on your version, craftsmen or uh, smiths, perhaps you might have, like blacksmiths. But there are these, these four uh, figures that come, and they come and they destroy the horns that were afflicting God's people. So I want you to think back for a second to the little history lesson I gave. Because in that history lesson, you might remember that there were these empires, Assyria and Babylon, that came down and they started wreaking havoc among God's people. In fact, they conquered the area and sent the uh, people of Israel into exile. They represent the horns that have come in to destroy God's people. But then what happens? God raises up another group of people, the Persians. They destroy the horns, Assyria and Babylon and they provide a way for the people of God to go back. And so he says in verse 21, what are these craftsmen coming to do? He said, these are the horns that scattered Judah, so that no one raised his head. And these have come to terrify them, to cast down the horns of the nations who lifted up their horns against the land of Judah to scatter it. So Persia has come to scatter the empire that scattered God's people. There's the message of the second vision. Now, let's take a quick breather here because we're going to see a lot more of these visions. But here I've tried to simplify each one to just one statement. So here's the, here's the next point. The second vision, God judges the nations. He, does, he raises up Assyria, he raises up Babylon, but just because he raised them up to serve his purpose does not exempt them from his standards and from his holiness. And so he says, I raised you up Assyria, I raised you up Babylon, but you became exceedingly wicked, just like the people of Israel had become. You became exceedingly wicked, so I'm going to raise up someone to come and to discipline you as well. So now where, where do you think we're going? We're going down to this seventh vision, which is absolutely, in my opinion, the most perplexing of them all. It's actually the simplest to understand, but the first time that you read Zechariah, you're going to be thinking, what in the world is this vision? So, I'm sorry, I skipped one, didn't I? I've gone from the horns to the woman in the basket, and I should have gone... I'm, I, I'm struggling to see my numbers there, but regardless... Uh, it should be the vision of the man with the measuring line. I'm sorry, this is in chapter 2. I got those flipped on the slides. My apologies about that. Chapter 2. Oh, I confuse myself here, folks. It can happen. We've got to flip back to chapter, um, we flip back to chapter 5. 
I was looking down at my Bible and thinking, the next one's chapter 2, but guess what? I'm reading them through modern eyes, and we're not used to the X structure, so I wasn't used to flipping my Bible back. We've got to do that, okay? Because we just read verses 18 through uh, the end of chapter 1, and so we've got to see the corresponding vision in chapter 5. Sorry about that. Chapter 5. I'm going to read it for you. Chapter 5, verse 5. I want you just to imagine this, would you, with me tonight? Then the angel who talked with me came forward and said to me, Lift your eyes and see what this is that is going on. And I said, What is it? And he said, This is the basket that is going out. This is the basket that is going out. And he said, This is their iniquity in all the land. And behold, the leaden cover was lifted, and there was a woman sitting in the basket. Are you picturing a basket? Were you picturing a woman going to be in that basket? Probably not. I wasn't when I was reading it the first time, I'll tell you that. So I'm thinking, okay, here's a, I'm thinking of a little basket. There's a woman in this basket. And he said, this is wickedness. And he thrust her back into the basket, thrust down the leaden weight on its opening. Then I lifted my eyes and saw, and behold, two women coming forward. The wind was in their wings. They had wings like the wings of a stork, and they lifted up the basket between earth and heaven. Then I said to the angel who talked with me, Where are they taking the basket? And he said to me, To the land of Shinar, to build a house for it. When this is repaired, they will set the basket down there on its base. Here Zechariah is talking about the exile of the people of Israel. They had become so identified with sin that God was literally saying, look at this woman representing uh, Israel and Judah. This woman could rightly be called wickedness because of how evil she has become. And so she is taken away. She's carried away, away from her home into um, Babylon, into the land of Shinar, in order that she might be disciplined. I want to show you why I have this line here between vision 2 and vision 7. Vision 2, God judges the nations, right? Babylon and Assyria, God's not going to let their iniquity go unpunished. Vision 7, God also disciplines His own people. Vision 2, God disciplines the nations. Vision 7, but He also disciplines His own people. So you see how they form one coherent thought. Just like vision 1 and vision 8, God is watching the nations. Visions 2 and vision 7, God judges. He disciplines both the nations and his own people. And so we look to our next vision. And what do we have to do? Note to self, what do we have to do? We've got to rewind. We've got to go back. We've got to go back to chapter 2. We've got to look at this vision of a man with a measuring line. Now, this is a bit of a longer vision, but the, the bottom line is there's going to be this person who is going to measure out the uh, area of the city. He's going to measure this city, and he's going to see how big it is and where its walls should be. In fact, God says in verse 5, I will be to her a wall of fire all around, declares the Lord, and I will be the glory in her midst. Beautiful thought there, but for the sake of time, we'll keep going. Jerusalem is going to be rebuilt. God's city is going to be rebuilt. That has the fulfillment when the people of Israel go back to Jerusalem, but how much more does it have fulfillment when we think about the new covenant, we think about the new Jerusalem, and we're going to get to all of that here in just a second. But God's city 
is going to be rebuilt. So we follow our little line here, and we go to chapter 5, verses 1 through 4, and we're going to see this vision of a flying scroll. Nobody can say that the book of Zechariah, at least the first half, has uh, you know, nothing interesting in it, because it has all sorts of things. He's, here's a flying scroll, and he sees, he sees this scroll, and it's flying around, and it's saying, um, he, he says, the angel talks, and he says, this is the curse that goes out over the face of the whole land. Everyone who steals shall be cleaned out, and everyone who swears falsely shall be cleaned out. The idea is, God's word has entered into this city, and God's word is refining the city. The city is going to be a place where God's word brings justice for his people. The thief is not going to be able to steal from God's people. The liar is not going to be able to mislead God's people, because the scroll is there to sort of police the area, to purify God's people. And so we look at these visions and we say, aha, God's rebuilding his city, and in that city his word will bring justice. See how they form these coherent thoughts. This was very common in the writings of the prophets and the writings of their day, very uncommon for us. We're not, the last time you read a novel, I doubt you were flipping back and forth from beginning to end, right? It's just not the way that we read. You have to read the book more than once to be able to see this, and once you see it, then it can help you um, get the most out of these books. Uh, otherwise, you might not make the connections between the two. So I think it is important for us to think about. We continue on in the story, and we, we think about, um, you know, we, we've seen vision one, we've seen vision two, we've seen vision three, now we're going to see vision four in chapter three, which is about God's people being cleansed. God's people are going to be cleansed. And for the sake of time, let me just say, Joshua the high priest, not Joshua the guy that you know from the book of Joshua, not that guy. Joshua is a guy living in Zechariah's day who is the high priest for Israel. And he's there, and he's standing in filthy garments, is the way that it's put, filthy clothes. And as he's standing there in these dirty, raggedy clothes, Satan is there, and he is accusing him. You know, in 1 John, uh, Satan is described as the accuser. He's, the accu he's, he's whispering in Joshua's ear, reminding him of his guilt. Really, he's reminding him of the guilt of the people. But behold, Joshua's cloak is going to be cleansed. It's going to be washed. He's going to have a garment put on that is clean, that is no longer filthy. And so the message, quite simply, is that um, God's people are going to be cleansed. There's coming a day in which God is not going to hold his people accountable um, for the sins that they had committed in the past. His people are going to be cleansed. And then we go up and we read another story about Joshua and Zedekiah, but no, we don't have time to get into him, but, um, but Zedekiah and Joshua. And, uh, and you come up here and you read in chapter 4. You read this story. In, uh, in chapter 4, you read this story about these trees, olive trees as they are called, and, uh, and, sorry, I said Zedekiah, Zerubbabel. But you read these stories about these two trees, these olive trees. And basically, these olive trees stand side by side one another, and they represent Joshua and Zerubbabel. But there's a lampstand that is underneath them, receiving oil from the tree. Very cryptic, very symbolic, and there's seven lamps on the lampstand, and seven lips on each lamp, and, and it's, it's quite the image. 
But the scriptures tell us, in, in Zechariah chapter 4, the scriptures tell us that the lamp is representative of the all-seeing, all-knowing eye of God. That God is able to look out and he's able to see everything. And the central message that God gives to the trees, to these branches that are going to lead his people, and, and here's a powerful verse in, in verse 6, chapter 4, verse 6. Then he said to me, This is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel. Not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. God looks at the two people that he has anointed to lead his people in this new era um, when they're coming back to the city of Jerusalem, and he wants them to know from the beginning you are not going to be able to lead these people by the strength of your own power. Did you see how that worked out for you in history when you relied on your own strength to be able to lead my people? Do you see what happened when you relied on your own wisdom to lead my people? He says the only way you're going to be able to lead my people is if you are first led by me. A lot of application there. We're going to come back to that in just a moment. So we look back up on our chart and you're going to despise the day you ever saw this X shape, but that's okay. Um, you see here, God's people are going to be cleansed, Joshua's garments. You come up here, and God alone can empower. God alone can empower the leaders, and God alone can cleanse the leaders. You see how that works there. And just like that, we've looked at each of the visions of this story, and we've really seen a, a central or a series of central ideas building in front of our eyes. We've seen how this functions as we go through and we think before I go to the oracles I want to just kind of tie up the visions for you in, in a couple of words. You think about the visions and the message of the vision the message of the visions is this God watches the nations God judges both the nations and his people God's city will be a light to the nations and a place of justice. And God's people will be cleansed, but their power only come, comes from God's Spirit. There's the message as a whole. Um, God, judges, God watches the nations. He judges all the nations, including His people. His nation, His city, is going to be a light to the nations. And it's going to uh, it not only be a light to the nations, it's going to be a place of justice. And his people are going to have their sins forgiven. But only through their, the power of God's Spirit will they be able to carry on. That is essentially the message of Zechariah. We're not going to spend a ton of time in the oracles because the oracles are essentially an exposition, a, a taking of those visions and laying them out in more detail. But the oracles center around this idea of this Messiah that is coming. God's going to judge the nations and establish his peace. And you could look at chapter 9, verses 1 through 8 for that. And if you went to chapter 9, uh, just to read you one little bit from chapter 9, um, you know, God talks about in verse 4, talks about these different nations, Damascus and Tyre and all these cities. But he says, Behold, the Lord will strip her of her possessions and strike down her power on the sea, and she shall be devoured by fire. God judges the nations and establishes his peace. But... The way that God judges the nations is through this king. 
And you think about, surely we're going to be talking about this mighty warrior, this amazing, you know, um, the, one of the biblical uh, images, this lion that's going to come roaring in and is going to, you know, win the day. And yet, as you keep reading in chapter 9, this judgment is going to be executed by a humble king who comes into the city riding on a feeble donkey, and he doesn't have, a, uh, he doesn't have any royal army with him. He doesn't have anything about him that really would seem uh, to be something that should be esteemed. But he comes in, behold your king, in verse, uh, uh, the end of verse 9. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he. Humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Clearly we read about that fulfillment, right, in the New Testament, in Matthew and John. We read about Jesus entering uh, on, on the donkey, and uh, the rejoicing that goes with that, followed, of course, by the betrayal, and that's what's going to happen next in Zechariah. Such an amazing picture of these messianic prophecies, by the way. This humble king is not just a king. He's also got a, a shepherd's staff with him. He is both a king and a shepherd of his people. And as this shepherd is looking out and he's surveying the people of God, he is seeing that the people, though he is righteous, are going to reject him as their shepherd. In fact, they are going to sell him as their shepherd. He's going to, they're going to sell him like a slave for, anybody know? 30, yeah, 30 pieces of silver. Anybody know how much Judas was paid when he betrayed Jesus? 30 pieces. Yeah, 30 pieces of silver. Anybody know what happens when Judas gets that money? What does he do with it? Yeah, yeah, he throws it back right into the temple. Same thing as described here in Zechariah, that the coins that they used to, to buy this uh, shepherd are going to be scattered in, uh, in the temple area. So, he's a righteous but rejected shepherd. However, not everyone, thankfully, is going to reject the shepherd. And I want to look quickly at chapters 12 through 14. Chapters 12 through 14 are, are so incredible to me because they describe such a uh, tremendous hope that God's people have. And, and it really it begins as we think about the new Jerusalem in chapter 12, verses 1 through 9. Um, he says, uh, on that day, in verse 3, on that day... I will make Jerusalem a heavy stone for all the peoples, something that can't be lifted. All who lift it will surely hurt themselves, and all the nations of the earth will gather against it. But on that day, declares the Lord, I will strike every horse. He goes on talks about striking their rider and all this stuff, but he says, all the nations of the world will conspire against my city, but it shall be like a rock that cannot be moved. Did you guys talk about Daniel yet? I'm assuming you probably have, maybe, maybe not. But, uh, but in the book of Daniel, you remember Daniel's vision? Nebuchadnezzar has this dream. And he dreams this dream where there's this big statue and it's got a you know, head of this material and it's got a torso of this material, legs of this material, feet, blah, blah, blah. Four different types of material representing these different kingdoms. But anybody remember what God's kingdom is symbolized as? It's a big stone. It's a boulder that comes rolling through, smashing the powers of the world. That's the idea here in Zechariah chapter 12. There's going to be a new Jerusalem. 
And that Jerusalem is going to be led by a pierced Savior. That sounds like somebody we know. In Zechariah chapter 12, verse 10, I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and pleas for mercy, so that when they look on me, on him whom they have pierced, they shall mourn for him. As they look on him whom they have pierced. What, do they say? what does he say, though? God says that he's going to pour out his spirit when they look on me. God's going to be coming down and he's going to be pierced in order that when the people look at him, they might receive that spirit of, of peace, that spirit of grace, that spirit of mercy. And so that city that this pierced Savior is going to establish, it's going to be a just and pure city. And in verses 2 through 9, he talks about judgment against the, uh, the unholy and, and righteousness, the righteousness that he wants to see and some things like that. And then finally, it ends with this great chapter about the everlasting kingdom of God compared to the perishable kingdoms of this world. Each kingdom of the world, he says, is going to end uh, each kingdom is going to receive their due for the evil that they have done. But God's kingdom will surely stand. Okay, so we have looked at a whole lot of Zechariah, and yet we really haven't even scratched the surface. Good thing I'm only about a third of the way through. No, not really. Um, okay, so we think about this message. And now what we want to do is we want to start thinking about applying Zechariah to our lives. Because that's really important, right? We're not just here to gain academic knowledge. We're not just here even to better understand the Scriptures. Because you know what James says about people that understand the Scriptures but walk away unchanged? Remember that? Uh, they're like somebody who looks in a mirror and straight away forgets exactly what they look like, right? Um, nothing has changed. Because they went and they looked in the mirror and they didn't like what they saw. But rather than changing themselves, which is difficult... Because you can't change the mirror, right? Rather than changing themselves, they walked away and said, I'd just rather not think about what I look like. So we want to come to God's Word, this great mirror that reflects to us who we really are, and we want to walk away changed. So how do we do that? We've already thought about, and I'm going to go through this really quickly, we've already thought about how we apply Zechariah to Jesus. We've thought about how Jesus is the humble king on the donkey. We've, think, we've thought about the rejected and sold shepherd and we've thought about the pure Savior. But what principles can we glean from this great book, this cryptic book, sure, but this great book for our lives today? I want to give you just three principles. I want to give you three because that's the biblical way to do it. No, not really. But I tried to center what we talked about today on loosely on these three principles, as you see from the visions. And so I want to talk about how we can apply them today. The first principle, God is sovereign over the nations. He is the king over all the earth. Psalm chapter 2, maybe the most important, I don't know, psalm um, in terms of its use in the New Testament. Psalm 2 is quoted an awful lot. Psalm chapter 2, this is the Nathan paraphrase version, okay, mind you, but... Um, all the nations of the world conspire against the Lord and against His anointed. What's the word anointed? Messiah. All the nations of the, the world gather together against the Lord and against His Messiah. 
But you know what the Lord is doing as they conspire, as they plot and they scheme? The Lord laughs at them. He is seated at such a position of power as the king over all the nations that he sees their plotting, and he literally mocks them. Because they have the audacity to think that they are going to impact his ability to reign over the earth. I hear the month November is coming pretty soon. Anybody else hear about that? November's, it comes every year, but uh, every four years it seems to be a little bit of a different time. Um, could I just tell you, that's not going to change after a Tuesday in November. And I, I don't care who wins the election of our country, that's not going to change. And, and we, can, we can fret and we can panic about what happens, whatever happens. But really, God, our God, is still the sovereign king over the nations. I'm going to press into you a little bit more about this. I get to do that because you can't fire me, okay? Um, so let me, let me press you a bit on this. At some point, we have presumed, we have claimed to know God's intention for our country. I want you to stop and I want you to really think about that. When God spoke to the people of Israel and he spoke to the people of Judah, you know what he told them? Behold, says the Lord, I'm doing such a thing in your day as if I told you you wouldn't believe me. And then he goes on and he says, I'm going to raise up this nation over here. And then he says, oh, and I'm going to raise up this nation over here. But he tells them from the get-go, he says, I'm doing something that you could not possibly fathom. I'm going to give you some hints about what's going to happen so that later you can look and you can see my wisdom. But I'm doing something in your day that you wouldn't believe, even if I told you. Is God still working in our world today? Unfortunately, it may be the case that there comes a time where a life of comfort and the American dream is not what is best for the spreading of the gospel in our world. Have you ever considered that? Have I ever considered? That's a really important thing to consider. God has looked at his people and he said, don't be afraid because I'm the sovereign king over the nations. But I am the sovereign king who has a mission and a plan. And that mission is not always contingent upon your present happiness your present comfort. I'm working something, but let me tell you, it wasn't comfortable for the people of Judah and the people of Israel when God was doing something in their, their day that they wouldn't understand. It wasn't comfortable for them at all. They had to go through an awful lot. And some of them were even righteous during that time, right? I mean, you have people like Daniel. You have people like Jeremiah. Jeremiah did basically everything right, and he got nothing for it. He, he did not have the American dream, but he was a very faithful man of God. But you know what? Every single one of these minor prophets, they teach us. By the way, what does Stephen say? Which one of the prophets did you not kill? Each one of them suffered a great cost. But they believed that the mission of God surpassed the importance of their own comfort in life. And that is not at all, hear me carefully, 
That is not at all me trying to say tonight that you shouldn't vote or that you shouldn't work for good in our world. We should pursue the well-being of our nation. That's a biblical thing as well. Jeremiah talks about pursuing the good of the city that you're in, the area that you're in. But I'm just saying, come November, God's still going to be sovereign and He's still going to have a mission for His people. And one day, whether it is in our time or not, one day this nation too will fall. Just like the nation of Israel, just like the nation of uh, the people of Judah, just like the nation of Syria, then Assyria, then Babylon, then Persia, then Greece, then Rome. Our time will come. But God's purposes will not have changed. And God will still be the king, the sovereign king over the nations. And he says, I have put, Psalm 2 again, I have put on my city my anointed one. And then a little later in Psalm 2, and he will take in his hand the rod, and he will shatter the nations. No one will stand before the Lord's anointed. The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. God's still in control. And we have to learn, and this is a very difficult lesson for us to learn, we have to learn to trust that he is in control even when it is uncomfortable because he has a mission that transcends our need to experience finite happiness. Principle number one. We could end there because that's enough to chew on, but we'll go to principle two. God takes sin seriously. He brings his rod against the nations. He brings Assyria and Babylon against the people of Israel. God takes sin seriously, but he disciplines out of love. You remember that crazy story we looked at a little while ago? Remember that story about that woman in the basket? That woman Israel in the basket who was so sinful that she was identified as wickedness? How come she was in the basket? And how come she was taken away into Babylon? Because the Lord was taking this woman, this literally, essentially sin embodied, taking this basket out into Babylon in order that in the wilderness she might learn to return. Zechariah chapter 1, right? Return to me, and I will return to you. God disciplined the people of Israel. So many people died, so many people suffered, and they were brought out into this exile, this period of exile and destruction. The temple was destroyed and all that. But His wrath was poured out on His people in order to purge them of the sin that they had become so attached to, the sin that they had allowed to borrow from the Hebrew writer to cling so closely to them, so closely that they even were embodying sin essentially itself. God disciplines, but he does so out of love. Now that's very important for us as Christians when we think about not only what God is doing in the world, but what we ought to be doing in the world. We must absolutely take sin seriously, but the moment that we begin thinking, of course, of ourselves as righteous, there's a mistake, but the moment we begin thinking and taking this satisfaction in being right and this satisfaction in, um, you know, standing up for the truth, and we forget about disciplining out of love, we forget about pursuing righteousness out of love, can I just tell you that the moment love leaves us, we have become just as guilty of sin as the sinners we claim we are opposing. 
the moment love leaves us, we are as guilty as the people that we are presuming to judge. And we need to think about that very carefully because you'll probably notice this is true in my life, and I, I try to repent of this as often as I can. There are sins that I hate, but I don't really struggle with those sins. Is that true of you? Oh, there are sins that just burn me up. I just can't believe to see. Maybe you've said things like this. Look at what is happening in our country or something along those lines. But those sins are not really the ones that I struggle with. And I'm a lot less um, hasty to lay down the hammer on sins that I cling closely And the book of Zechariah is going to teach us that God, He's the all-seeing eye, if you will. He's that lamp that sees everything. He's the one patrolling over all the earth. And I'm not going to be able to fool God by trying to prop myself up as righteous by condemning sins that I don't struggle with while allowing my life to go unchanged. God takes sin seriously, but He disciplines out of love. What does He say? He desires that all men should be saved. All people should be saved, should come to the knowledge of Him. Principle number two. Principle number three, and then we'll be done tonight. Here's the good news. There is a city for God's people, and the Messiah, the Anointed One, the One who reigns over the nations, the Messiah is its King. And in that city, I mean, there's so many things we could pull out of Zechariah just to talk about it, but this city is led by the pierced shepherd king. You remember maybe in Revelation, it's in chapter 5, somewhere around there, chapter 5 or chapter 6. Revelation, I think it's chapter 6. You remember that there is this great vision. There's a scroll. We read something about a scroll tonight, but there's this scroll, and nobody is found that's able to open the scroll. You remember this? Nobody's, they, they can't get the thing open. Nobody's worthy enough to open it. And, and John starts crying about that because the scroll needs to be opened so that God's plans can come to pass. And they say, hey, don't cry. Get up and look. Behold, the Lion of Judah is coming in. So John looks up and he's expecting to see this great big lion coming in as a warrior. And you know what it says? I lifted up my eyes And behold, a lamb, looking as though it had been slain. He's looking up and he's expecting a warrior. And in comes this pierced lamb that walks up to the scroll and opens the scroll. And they sing a new song, right? Worthy is the lamb who was slain. Worthy of glory and honor and power. He's, and okay, enough of that. I gotta gotta move on from that. This city is led by the pierced shepherd king. And the city is a place of peace, the place of joy and righteousness. And it's a place for those who have received, according to Zechariah chapter 12, verse 10, the outpouring of God's Spirit. Acts chapter 2, verse 38, you probably know that well. Peter talks about, what, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Or maybe in Romans chapter 8, 
Paul talks a lot about the indwelling of the Holy Spirit in Romans chapter 8. And he says, we don't know how to pray like we should, but the Spirit helps us in our weakness, making groanings, utterings that are deeper than words. There's a city for God's people, the people that have received God's Spirit, and those people are led by the Messiah. And as we close tonight, I just can't, I can't help but think of the end of Revelation, Revelation chapter 21. Here we have this lion, this lamb, this shepherd, this king, this ruler who has come. The Messiah has come for his people. And you probably know Revelation 21 verse 4, right? And God shall wipe away every tear. You know, there's going to be no disease. There's going to be no sorrow. There's going to be nothing of that sort. The Lord's going to come, and He's going to wipe away their tears, cure their ailments, all that. But what does verse 3 say? Revelation chapter 21, verse 3 says, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will be their God and dwell among them. The hope that we have is that we are, like Abraham, looking to a better city. We're looking forward to being in God's unfiltered presence. We could look at him, according to 2 Corinthians chapter 3, we could look at him with unveiled face. And we could experience the light of his presence, the joy of his presence forever. In that city, they don't even need a light because the Lord himself, Jesus Christ, the Messiah, is the light. And in that city, there is security, there is safety, there is peace, there is joy, and of course, there is love. And as I consider the book of Zechariah, I just have to say, let us never cease to look upon the pierced Savior and to look forward to the city with foundations, the unshakable kingdom. Let's pray. Father, what a God you are. We're so eternally grateful for the one who is pierced on our behalf. We're thankful that you are the good shepherd. We're thankful that you are willing to lay down your life for the sheep. Father, as we think about the word that you have given us tonight in Zechariah, we think about how truly uh, at times difficult it is to read and interpret, and yet at the same time we look back and realize how simple it is. That the message that you're trying to teach us is the message that you've been teaching us for a long time. That you are in control that you are both the judge and savior of the world. We thank you for your word. We thank you for this message. And we pray, Lord, that you help us to internalize it and take it in to our lives. Father, particularly, I pray, as we journey closer to a tumultuous time in our nation's history, as elections are around the corner and we've got the coronavirus and all of that, Father, I pray that you give us peace and that you give us strength in the knowledge that you are the sovereign king. And we pray your will be done in our world. And we ask that you would make us your instruments of your will in your world through Jesus and the power of your spirit. Amen.